You are listening to an audio recording from the ministry of Jefferson Town Bible Church in Jefferson Town, Kentucky, where we gather to proclaim God's Word. For more information, please visit jtownbible.org. We have finished Romans, so where do we go next? The answer to that is uh, we go to the book of Hebrews. I have never preached through the book of Hebrews. And I am getting, uh, I've preached through a lot of the other New Testament and a number of Old Testament books, but I've never preached through the book of Hebrews. Uh, not because I'm afraid of it or anything like that, um, but it just didn't uh, fall into place. So as I transitioned from Romans to Hebrews, part of my thinking process was, well, I'm getting on up there in years, and um, if I'm going to preach through Hebrews, I better do it now. <laughs> and uh, <clears throat> it's, a, it's a great book. All the books of the Bible are great books in reality. But it, it is a book that has its own set of challenges. And uh, there's a number of, of passages, and there are several passages, I should say, that, uh, that have uh, caused believers over the centuries to wrestle with, uh, with what it's driving at and what it means in very broad terms. And we'll, we'll look at those passages in particular as we get to them. But the book of Hebrews is a book that uh, really focuses on the person of Jesus Christ and his preeminence. Uh, his supremacy, as some have said, his excellence, as some have said, uh, it's a book that elevates the person of Jesus Christ. And this was, this was necessary. Uh, we, we need to transport ourselves back to the first century in our thinking and realize the setting in which this book took place. The setting was the church was in the process of being established. And uh, it first began among the Jewish population, the Jewish people, in Jerusalem, and continued to focus primarily upon the Jewish people for the first few decades. Not exclusively, but primarily. And in the Jewish context, uh, they wrestled with their own specific set of issues that were not wrestled with among Gentiles who came to faith in Christ or Gentiles who heard the gospel. They wrestled with other issues and different issues but among the Hebrew population, not only of Palestine at that time, but in all the metropolitan areas in which they had been scattered and uh, in which they lived and had developed uh, very successful lives for the most part, uh, they still had their Judaism that they practiced. They established synagogues in those cities. And so the Judaism continued to be uh, at the central part of their lives. And the message of the gospel, the message that Jesus Christ proclaimed and sent his disciples and apostles out to proclaim was a message that in part said, the, the Son of God has come, the Messiah has arrived, all that the Old Testament was put in place to do has been achieved as it pertains to the coming of the Messiah. And now we are moving from being a focus on the Old Covenant and the Old Testament and all that it embodies 
Now we're transitioning to a new covenant put in place by Jesus Christ, which means, among other things, that in coming to Christ, if you are a Hebrew or a Jew, that you leave behind the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, and all of its practices, except for those practices that are restated and kept and emphasized in the New Testament or the New Covenant. It's the same thing. So what you have in your hands today uh, that are the books of the New Testament, that's the New Covenant. And, and that was the message of our Lord. That was a message of the apostles. And it was not an easy transition. There were those who did make that transition, who grasped and understood the truth, and they, by God's grace, made that transition, not with the snap of their fingers, there were those who wrestled with whether or not they wanted to make that transition, and then there were others who pretty much dismissed the claims and the teaching of the new covenant and continued to hold on to the old covenant. That was true in the Hebrew population. Uh, in a similar way, in the non-Jewish population, uh, the world of paganism, as it was referred to, um, it, it was a world that was very religious as well. They had a variety of gods that they had developed and that they worshipped. They had temples that they had erected to these gods that were massive, that were impressive, that were beautiful. And they had their systems of worship that were tied to those temples and, and their belief systems that were tied to the gods that they made. And, and how they were to understand these variety of gods that they worshipped. The pagans did not, by and large, worship one god. Their belief was that there were many gods and that there were chief deities of a city, if it was significant enough, or of a region, or even of a state or a country. But along with that chief deity that they believed had dominance and power in that area and among that portion of the human population were other deities, and so they worshipped a variety of deities simultaneously, but they elevated one in any given area as the prominent one that they gave most attention to in their worship. The message of the gospel equally called them to believe the message that Jesus Christ himself is the way, the truth, and the life, and that apart from him there's, there's no way to God. It called upon them to understand that there is but one God, existing in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and that this one God made provision for man's sin in the person of God the Son, Jesus Christ, and that they were called upon, as were the Jewish people, to repent of their sin and turn to Jesus Christ and trust and believe in Him as Lord and Savior. It was not easy for them to leave their paganism, for they too experienced the difficulties of transitioning away from a belief system and a worship system that they had grown up with and that the people in their city, the people in their country embraced. If you were Jewish, fellow Jews didn't say, oh, well, good for you. I'm glad that you have another way of thinking. We are all open-minded here, and whatever you choose to think and believe is fine with us. And if you choose to walk away from Judaism and all that it is, well, then that's your choice, and we're good with that. Likewise, those in the Gentile context, um, they didn't find that kind of reaction among um, 
their, their counterparts. They didn't find people in their own cities, in their own countries, saying, hey, you know, this is a new idea. This is, this is some new thinking in the area of religion, and we think it's great. We're always open to more ideas and, and more gods and so forth, and, and your belief that there's one God and only one way of salvation is, is fine. That's great. And, and the fact that you're leaving the worship of Zeus and the worship of Aphrodite and name any other pagan deity you can think of is fine. That's great, you know, and just more power to you. That's 21st century terminology. They didn't talk like that back then. <laughs> no. They faced a lot of resistance. Now, the book of Hebrews is written by an unidentified human author. All the New Testament, all the Scripture is written by God using holy men whom He chose, holy in the sense that they're set apart, not holy in the sense that they're perfect and without sin. No one's perfect and without sin. But God chose, and the Spirit of God moved the thinking of men in the Old Testament era and the New Testament era to write what he wanted written. So he was guiding their thoughts, not dictating, but guiding their thoughts. And for a lot of the New Testament books, the author is identified. Paul wrote the majority of the New Testament uh, books, the New Covenant books. <clears throat> the book of Hebrews has an unidentified author. There are those who say, who suggest that the Apostle Paul wrote it. Uh, there are those who argue against that and say, no, the writing style that, he, that Paul, we see in his other letters, we don't see that so much in Hebrews. There's some similarity, uh, but it, it doesn't look like Paul's style of writing, of communicating. There are those who suggested that uh, one of the men that was uh, prominent <coughs> in the early church and was influenced by Paul, uh, a man by the name of Apollos, who was a tremendous orator, tremendous communicator, was the author of the book. Uh, a couple others have been suggested, as, but no one knows who the human author was because that person is not identified in this book, and it's not essential that we know specifically who the human author happens to be. I can live with that. Because I know that whoever that author was, they were a believer, and they knew Judaism, and they knew the Word of God, and the Spirit of God was guiding them and directing them, uh, superintending their thoughts, as he did every other author of the New Testament. So that we, we do not know specifically who the author was for this book. <clears throat> we do understand that the book was probably written in the mid-60s A.D., uh, what is talked about in this book, uh, there's a couple of bookends, no pun intended. Uh, the Ascension of Christ after His resurrection, this book was written after that, and it was written prior to the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, destruction of Jerusalem, which occurred in A.D. 70 at the hands of Titus, the Roman general. So it's probably written as best as can be determined in the period of the decade of the 60s <clears throat> prior to the destruction of the temple. And it was written to Jews struggling with departing Judaism for Christ. Because Christ called 
his fellow Jews in his ministry to believe, to repent, and believe the gospel, to repent and enter the kingdom. All that was built into the Old Testament. Understand this distinction. Judaism as it existed at the time of Jesus Christ was not an exact expression or representation of Old Testament worship. It was built off of that, but they had added to it a number of their traditions, a number of man-made commands, as our Lord referred to them, human commands, that they elevated to the level of God's commands. So the Judaism of the first century did not even really get to the heart of the Judaism or the Old Testament revelation of how God is to be understood and worshipped. But that was the foundation of Judaism. And of course, at the heart of it was the temple and the priesthood and the sacrifices. All of that came from the Old Testament. And the Sabbath and the commands, but they layered that with a number of human commands commands that were generated and originated by teachers of the law, but they were not part of the law. So that was Judaism in broad terms when our Lord was here on this earth ministering among his people. And he called upon his fellow Jews to repent of their sins. Now, Jews didn't believe themselves to be sinless. They didn't believe themselves to be without issue. But they did believe themselves to be and perceive themselves to be the people of God. And they were. The Old Testament says you're the chosen people. And they climbed on that horse and they rode it. And in riding that horse, they sped across the prairie of the Old Testament scriptures and pretty much lost sight of the realities of what their forefathers were like for a good portion of the history. And so they believed themselves to simply be the chosen people because God said you're the chosen people. And, and they lost sight of the realities of what it meant to, to know God and to have a right relationship with God. They thought simply because they were born a Jew, ethnically a Jew, biologically Jewish, that they were automatically chosen of God, accepted by God. Jesus Christ arrives on the scene, and his ministry was exclusively to the Jewish people, living in Palestine. He didn't even go to metropolitan uh, population areas where Jewish people lived across the Roman Empire and do ministry there. He stayed in Palestine or in modern-day Israel. And he did his ministry there. He did his preaching and teaching there. And it was among that population of Jews that he called upon them to repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. One day, the most prominent Jewish teacher, if he wasn't the most prominent, he was in that circle of prominent Jewish teachers who when they spoke, the Jewish people listened. Nicodemus. That conversation is recorded in John chapter 3. It's fascinating that Nicodemus sought out Jesus Christ and engaged him in this question. 
about being part of the kingdom of God. You can read about it in John chapter 3. And Jesus said to Nicodemus, he said, you know, unless you are born again, you Nicodemus, not you Jewish people in general, but this is our conversation, Nicodemus, unless you are born again, you will in no way, in no wise, enter the kingdom of God. So Jesus is addressing one of the master teachers, the most respected teachers in Israel at that time, and saying, you need to be born again. He wasn't doing it in a confronted, belligerent way. He's just saying, listen, unless you're born again, you will not enter the kingdom of God. Well, they thought that was part of their inheritance. That, that wasn't a question. That wasn't an issue for them. So here's this man, Jesus Christ, a Jew, addressing Nicodemus in this way. And Nicodemus says, well, how, how is it that I can enter my mother's womb again and be born? Perfect question, because Jesus then said, you know, um, unless the Son of Man is risen up, raised up, referring to the brass snake in the Old Testament, you know, you're, you're not... Uh, it's through him that you will have forgiveness of sins. And Jesus pointed him to the fact that he was speaking about being spiritually reborn and, and the need to be born again by the word of God, by means of the word of God, the message of the word of God. So Jesus called his own people to set aside the Judaism with which they had been brought up and uh, with which they lived at the time and leave that behind and turn to him. He didn't call upon them to trash the old covenant, to trash Moses, Moses to trash the, uh, the, the prophets, to do anything of that nature. But he's saying they have served their purpose. They have pointed to the Messiah. The Messiah is here and the Messiah calls upon you to repent of your sins and be born again because that is where the kingdom of God begins. The kingdom of God is populated by born-again individuals. It's not populated by people who happen to be of a particular ethnicity, who happen to have particular biological parents who produce Jewish people. That is not the basis of the kingdom of God. The basis of the kingdom of God is being born again. And so all of the Old Testament pointed to the reality of the Messiah, and the Messiah was among them. And now it was time for them to realize that in order to come to the Messiah, they had to transition away from the Judaism. And again, that did not mean trashing it. It meant saying it has served its purpose, and the Messiah has come now by faith. I trust in Jesus Christ of Nazareth as the Messiah, the Lord and Savior, the one who takes away the sins of the world. So for the Jews of the first century and the century since then, they struggle 
with turning and departing from Judaism, if they've held on to it at all, and turning to Christ. And even those who haven't held on to their Judaism, they still struggle with turning to Christ when they hear the gospel because of the heritage of, that they've heard about concerning Jesus Christ and Christians and Christianity. So it's still a struggle for many. So there's three, and as we go through the book of Hebrews, there's three groups of people that is vitally important to keep in mind. Three groups of uh, kinds, shouldn't say kinds, but three groups of, of Hebrews, uh, Jewish people, that uh, the author is addressing here, the Spirit of God is addressing. And it's important to keep these in mind in order to understand the various passages that we will encounter, and we will look at them uh, by God's grace in depth as we move through it. But as we approach this book, it's important to grasp this so that we can grasp what is being said as we move through the book. And in many ways, what is Hebrews talks about is applicable to uh, all religious systems. First of all, you had Hebrew Christians or believers, those among the Jews who did believe. They actually came to faith in Christ and were following him, but they struggled. They struggled because primarily of persecution. When a Jewish person came to faith in Christ, it didn't matter if it was in Palestine, it didn't matter if it was in Rome, Thessalonica, Athens, Corinth, any of those cities where there was a Jewish population, it meant persecution. Because in coming to Christ, they were affirming their belief that there is but one God, and all Jews would, believe, would affirm that there's one God. But that belief then was fleshed out more, uh, especially through the confession of, of baptism. Baptism happens with those who are already disciples, those who've already trusted Christ as Savior. But in baptism... They are baptized, when a person is baptized, a believer is baptized, they're baptized in what name? The name of Jesus only? The name of, I baptize you in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. That's the affirmation that there's one God. But this God exists in three persons. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That was anathema. That was blasphemous to the Jewish mindset, to the Jewish belief system. They affirmed there's one God, and besides him there are no other gods. But to say that God exists as the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, that was blasphemous. So coming to faith in Christ was an affirmation that I believe that Jesus Christ is God, God the Son, and that in him is salvation. And I believe the Spirit of God is the one who applies that salvation to my life. So part, the central core of baptism is that public profession and that public pronouncement that I now believe that there is but one God and He exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That was a radical statement in the Jewish culture and setting. And they were persecuted because of it. It meant often that they would be ostracized by their very own family. 
I mean, they would be cut off by their family. It didn't happen in every situation. Don't mean to say that. But it was predominantly the situation where their family would cut them off. You profess this about Jesus Christ, about this man who was crucified as a criminal? You profess this? You believe that he is truly God? That's blasphemous. And, and they would ostracize that person from their family. But it didn't stop there. They would be kicked out of the synagogue. That's where their social life occurred. That's where their connections occurred. And they would be ostracized from that. Not only the place where they met, but the people in the synagogue were then to ostracize them. Which meant that, that their activities in the community were greatly hampered and influenced in a negative way. It wasn't uncommon for them to lose their job, their means of income. It was difficult. As you read through the book of Acts, it was pretty common that as the gospel took root in different cities, beginning in Jerusalem and then moving out from there to the other population centers of the world over the decades, especially in the first 60 years of the church's life and experience, the people group that most adamantly stirred up opposition against Christians were Jews, unbelieving Jews. And it's not to say anything negative about them. That's just a record that we find in the book of Acts. We see that opposition in Acts 2 and 3 and 4, where the high priest and the priest were so irate at the, the, the disciples that they commanded them not to preach the name of Jesus in the temple. They threatened them, and they had the means to follow through on that threat, and they did at times. It was the Jewish leadership, the Jewish religious leadership, that threatened them and sought to take action against them and to stir up their fellow Jews against the disciples, and they did. Then we, we move on from that, and we see that it, the, the Acts centers on one person in particular, a man by the name of Saul of Tarsus, a Pharisee of the Pharisees, who was really deeply committed to Judaism, deeply committed to all that Judaism taught. And he hated, he hated Christians, and he hated Jesus Christ. He absolutely hated Jesus Christ. That's on the record of Scripture. So much so that he gave, was willing and did give himself to tracking down other Jews living in other population centers to force them to recant of their profession of faith in Jesus Christ. To turn away from their profession of faith in Jesus. He secured letters from the chief priest in, Israel, in, in Jerusalem, giving official authorization for him to go and carry out this kind of activity. This was in cities that were part of the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire gave special 
privilege to the Jewish people to kind of monitor their own people and to continue to practice uh, the law as they understood it, apart from capital punishment. And so Paul had these letters secured, or Saul had these letters secured, to go and root out Jews, Jews only, who were professing faith in Jesus Christ, and persecute them, intimidate and threaten them, so that they would turn from their belief, turn away from that, and embrace Judaism once again. But it was Jewish opposition. And then as Paul, by God's grace, came to faith in Jesus Christ, Acts chapter 9, the most bitter opposition that he encountered, not only initially, but continually throughout his life and ministry, was from his fellow Jews. We read that on the pages of Scripture. It was not an easy thing at all for the Jewish people to hear the gospel and come to faith in Christ. It was difficult, and they intended to make it difficult. And they did make it difficult. So we read statements such as we do in Hebrews chapter 10. Gives us just a little taste of the encouragement and the exhortation given to Hebrew Christians. But recall the former days in which, after you were illuminated, you endured a great struggle, verse 32, with sufferings. Paul didn't minimize the reality. I shouldn't say Paul. The writer didn't minimize the struggles and the sufferings that they experienced. He says, you endured it partly while you were made a spectacle, both by reproaches and tribulation. You were set up. You were put in, uh, made very visible. And, and they used reproaches They trashed you publicly. We would call it public shaming today. Intentionally setting you aside and reproaching you and publicly humiliating you and shaming you for turning away from the faith of the fathers. And tribulations, meaning difficulties, intentionally inflicting difficulty into your life in every way possible. He says, you endured that. And partly while you became companions of those who were so treated. And then you you came together and encouraged one another. For you had compassion on me in my change and joyfully accepted the plundering of your goods. What does that mean? What does that mean? Talk to me. When it says the plundering of your goods, what's that talking about? Huh? Giving? (laughs) Taking. They didn't give them. They took their goods from them. They plundered them. So I was just trying to get the stronger term there, Ruth. (laughs) They took it. They did. Simply because they put their faith in Christ, which meant that they no longer were embracing Judaism as it was taught by the Pharisees and Sadducees and the chief priests at that time. Now they were following Christ and and because of that, they were taking whatever those goods were coming into their homes or wherever they had to go, they just took it from them because of their faith in Christ. Knowing that you are, have a better and an enduring possession for yourselves in heaven. If we're so earthly minded, we'll never be of any heavenly good. 
And if we're so earthly-minded, we'll never have our minds on the treasure in heaven. But that's what they experienced, and, and the writer is encouraging them. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 4 through 6. We read this. You have not yet resisted to bloodshed, striving against sin, referring to Christ Jesus. He resisted. He, he shed his blood as it pertained to the realities of sin and, and what God required for the payment of sin. He shed his blood. And you, and you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as sons. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. What a wonderful statement. Not because rebuke is pleasant, not because discipline is pleasant, but if someone, if a father truly loves a son, he will rebuke, he will discipline. And that's what our Lord is saying to, or what the author is saying to these Jewish believers. The Lord's chastening you at the time. And it's an expression of the reality of God's love for you. And so throughout this letter, our exhortations and encouragements to Hebrew believers, those who had truly come to faith in Christ. The next two, and we'll move through these more quickly. Hebrews that were open. These are the, the folks who are open to the message of the gospel. They, they, they see what's going on, but they're still open. They're listening, they're comprehending, they're understanding. They, they connect the dots in their understanding. So if, if the author was saying to them or other uh, teachers of the gospel were saying to them, do you understand? They would say, yeah, we're tracking with you. We understand, we comprehend. But they had not yet, they were not yet willing to entrust themselves to Christ, to put their faith and trust in Christ per se. And so there's a number of exhortations to this group of people in the book of Hebrews. And this group of people we really need to be mindful of when it comes to the warning passages. In chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, the first part of verse 3. Therefore, we must give the more earnest heed or attention to the things we have heard. Give attention, uh, specific, special attention to what you've heard, lest we drift away. In other words, the truth that God puts before us, we can't just let it sit there idly and say, okay, I'm going to let it stay there, and then I'm going to go do my thing and come back later. God's, the truth of God demands that we respond. For if the word spoken through the angels proves steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? If the word communicated through Jesus Christ, God the Son, is, is the final word as we see in chapter 1 in these last days, how shall we... How, those who are open but not willing, at some point, 
How shall you escape if you neglect so great a salvation? At some point, that openness needs to transition to a willingness to embrace the truth personally through faith. And he goes on in verse 3 to say, which at first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed by those who heard him, the apostles. So throughout this book, there are exhortations to those Hebrews who are open but not willing yet to come to faith in Christ. And then the third group, Hebrews, who are closed. They're not open to the gospel at the point, at that point. Doesn't mean that possibly they would never be, but at this point, and that's what chapter 9 is about, is it talks about the priesthood of Jesus Christ, the, the eternal high priest. And so in verse 11, we read this statement, but Christ came as high priest of the good things to come with the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation. So he's saying to those Hebrews who were hearing but were closed (coughs) that Jesus Christ is the high priest, And the tabernacle that he represents is a tabernacle not made with hands. And you need to move from the symbols and that which points to the Messiah, Jesus Christ, and come to Christ and recognize him for who he is and turn to him. Now, the book of Hebrews, as I stated, is written to Jewish people. The Hebrews. But the principles can be applied to any religious system. So they're vital truth. It's it's, it's an uh, incredible truth. But the bottom line is this. As we are exposed to the truth of the gospel, the truth communicated in and of and through Jesus Christ at some point, we need need to be... Uh, need to mean business with Christ. Need to take that step and transition from just hearing to acting on what we hear by faith. And if There are believers in difficult situations. It means continuing to grow and standing on the truths and the promises given to us in Christ and in the gospel. There are those who are open and they understand. They can tell you what you've been communicating, but they've not yet been willing to trust Christ. There are exhortations in this book about the importance and necessity of making that commitment to Christ by faith. And for those who, at any given point in time, in whatever religious system it is, they're closed, they seem to be closed, they continue to need to be exposed to the truth. Because you never know when God is going to use that truth 
to begin to move them to that open stage and then ultimately to that belief stage. So these truths, we need to understand them in their context and in their setting. And having done that, we need to think about them in application to any kind of a religious system. But the book of Hebrews is a wonderful and rich book. And the focus is on Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. Who is he? That's what they were asking in the first century. That's that's what they asked when he was among them. Who are you? Are you Elijah? Are you the prophet? One of the prophets? And Peter said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. They were asking, who are you? (laughs) His disciples, when they were in the boat and in the storm, and Jesus calmed the waters by just what he said, they said, well, who is this that's in our boat? And then once Jesus Christ ascended back to heaven and the apostles went out into the world to proclaim the gospel, people were asking, who is this man, Jesus Christ? They were trying to understand who he is. The book of Hebrews is one of those books that tells us Jesus Christ is God the Son. The focus is on Jesus Christ. So whether it's the first century or 21st century, people are still asking, who is this man? Who is this guy? Why do you believe in him? Why do you think it's important that people believe in him? Why do you think that he's the only way? What is it about him? The book of Hebrews answers those questions. And I thank God it does. So we're ready for a wonderful journey. Um, And I hope that you're with me on this journey as we begin in chapter 1 and by God's grace move through chapter 13 before I die. (laughs) Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time together in your word. And we thank you for the rich blessing of your word. These truths not only in Hebrews, but throughout your word. Lead us to you, the true and living God, the creator of all that exists, and the coming king. Father, we pray that you would enable us to grow deeper in the faith and deeper and richer in our love for our Lord Jesus Christ. And Father, have a a growing compassion for those who have yet to hear the gospel, for those who have heard but have not yet come to faith in Christ. And Father, also have a a compassion for our fellow believers uh, in many parts of our world who are suffering because of their faith in Christ Jesus. But Father, we rejoice at the opportunity to through the lens of Hebrews, see our Lord Jesus Christ for who he is and all his glory. Father, guide us now. Teach us as we move through this journey in this portion of your word. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. This has been an audio recording from the ministry of Jefferson Town Bible Church in Jefferson Town, Kentucky, where we gather to proclaim God's word. For more information, please visit jtownbible.org.